Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Dua Lipa at Your Service, a podcast series in which I sit down with guests who inspire me deeply, including today's once-in-a-lifetime talent, the author and storyteller, Min Jin Lee. Before we dive into today's conversation with Min, I just want to take a moment to share some of the many messages that we've received from women in Iran in response to the death of Massa Amini. As most of you will know, Massa was arrested two weeks ago for not wearing her hijab in accordance with government standards. She died in what can at best be described as suspicious circumstances while in police custody. The protests that have followed on the streets of Iran have been some of the most powerful acts of defiance I have ever witnessed. Women are cutting off their hair in public and burning their hijabs in what is being called a women's revolution. A big motivation for me when I started this podcast on the Service 95 newsletter was to provide a platform for those fighting oppression and standing up for human rights. So it feels appropriate now to share voices from women on the front line in Iran. Obviously, these women and men protest at great risk to their personal safety in Iran, so even sending a plea for solidarity can be seen as a subversive act against the state. For that reason, I won't read aloud the names of those who have sent these messages. I'm a girl who's from Iran who is scared of being murdered by this government. We need the whole world to be our voice. We are scared. We are broken. The people of Iran need help. People of all ages, especially young women, are suffering from the mandatory hijab law. Not only do they not have the right to choose their appearance, but they are oppressed by many people, including the police. The police are trying to impose this law on people by hurting and physically harassing them. Iranian people need help to make their voice heard in the world. We cannot walk easily in the streets due to the fear of police. When we leave the house, we hug our parents for the last time because we don't know if we'll ever return home alive or dead. In any country, when a crime occurs, people seek help from the police. But we're afraid of the police in our country. Hijab law is not a human law. Rather, it is a complete opposition to freedom and human rights. The only thing we want from you is to tell your friends about Masa Amini so that they can share the news about Masa and what is happening in Iran. What we're hearing loud and clear with these messages is, please don't turn away. Please be our voice around the world. As someone who's increasingly alarmed by the erosion of women's rights around the globe, I want to say personally that we hear you, we see you, and your struggle reminds us all that freedom has to be fought for and should never be taken for granted. Now, after a quick break, join me as I introduce you to the spectacular Min Jin Lee. If you know Min Jin Lee's name, it's likely from the Harlem-based author's best-selling 2017 novel, Pachinko, a cross-generational book that deals deftly and poetically with powerful subject matter like immigration and anti-immigration sentiment, a woman's role in a man's world, motherhood, brotherhood, faith, war, substance abuse, and so much more. 
Pachinko is a sweeping and emotional novel that kept me reading long past my bedtime when I first picked it up several years ago. And revisiting it in recent months reminded me that the book, a New York Times bestseller and a finalist for the National Book Award for Fiction, is a modern masterpiece. Immigrating from Seoul, South Korea, to Queens, New York with a family at the age of seven, Min later graduated from the prestigious Bronx High School of Science and was inducted into the school's Hall of Fame years later. Continuing her studies at Yale, followed by Georgetown Law, she then worked for two years as a corporate lawyer, quitting in 1995 to become a novelist. In 2007, she published her debut novel, Free Food for Millionaires. Pachinko, which came a decade later, took nearly 20 years to research and write, she says. Her process is as much anthropological as it is historical. She says she prefers to know beforehand the answers to any and all questions that might come up during her writing, hence the lengthy periods of time that elapse between her published works. Earlier this year, Pachinko was turned into an Apple Plus TV series. Min is currently working on American Hagwon, the third novel of what she calls the Koreans trilogy. We spoke recently about the still resonant themes of free food for millionaires and pachinko, her writing process, the importance of storytelling at a time when marginalized voices are being silenced, and much, much more. I hope you'll enjoy our conversation as much as I did. So without any further delay, please welcome today's very special at your service guest, Min Jin Lee. Hello. Hi, Min. How are you? Oh my goodness, what an honor. No, the honor is all mine. I'm such a fan. Thank you so much for doing this with me. I'm really excited. The only thing that I have to do today is um, we have to use the word sugar boo at some point in okay. this podcast. Done, <laughs> done, done, done. We'll definitely use sugar boo. So I'll, I'll like maybe put it in one of my <laughs> questions or something. No, no, as we talk about, you know, Kosovo Albanians, we'll talk about the sugar boo effect or something. Okay, perfect. Um, it's so, so nice to speak to you this morning. Where are you in the world right now? I'm in Philadelphia. I ran away from home. Oh, what are you doing in Philadelphia, (laughs) apart from running away from home? I'm writing my book. (laughs) Oh, amazing. Oh, I'm so excited to hear more about that, actually. Oh, no, it's going to take forever. So So you're going to be in Philadelphia the whole time? Well, I was supposed to be here for much longer, but now I have to go to Korea because um, I got this award today. And um, Congratulations. Oh, thank you. It's, It's actually interesting because I was wondering about this with you, about being Albanian. I mean, you're obviously born in England, but Mm. this whole thing with going back to this sort of your ethnic heritage, because I'm getting much more attention now in Korea. And it's it's really interesting because I I didn't really think about it so much when I was writing. I mean, I'm always writing about Koreans, but I wasn't thinking about their response. Uh, It's interesting, actually, um, because I guess a question that I always get asked is like, oh, are you ever going to do a song in Albanian or are you going to write an Albanian song or whatever? And I'm super inspired by my culture. And I feel like the reason why I was able to do what I'm doing, especially in the early stages, was because I had so much support from the people in Kosovo. Right. They were so excited that it was like an Albanian person doing something, you know, in the UK. And so they were kind of the first people to be like, Let's champion her. And then it all just kind of like kicked off. You know, Kosovo has always been such a big part of my journey. Um, Because touching on on what we were just talking about, I think one of the things that really speaks to me most about your books is the way that you write about the immigrant experience and how immigrants are assimilated or not, or how cultures are preserved or lost. And your family emigrated to the US from Seoul to New York when you were seven years old. Mm -hmm. And I would love if you could speak to you and your family's like immigrant experience and what that was like, you know, moving to Queens, how your parents like 
acclimated to such a new way of life? Well, I feel exactly the same, but now I express myself in a way that when I was seven, I don't know if you were shy, but I was really quiet, almost strangely so. <laughs> really? Uh, yeah, I think I had a learning issue. I, I wasn't diagnosed, so I don't know what it was, but I didn't really start talking until almost middle school. Oh, that's, I mean, yeah, it's interesting. And not that I want to like disturb your train of thought, but for me, I was super, like a really like loud, crazy kid. But my sister, because she was at the same time, my parents spoke Albanian at home and then she was doing English at school. It took her a little while to just like start talking. And then when she started talking, she could speak both languages really fluently. So oh. I don't know if maybe that's just like a, a learning language thing. I don't know. It definitely could have been the language issue. But I'm sorry to go back to your question about immigrants. Um, so when I came here, because of all of my like inability to articulate and to express myself, I really lived in my head and I really lived in books. So when I came to America, I was so surprised because I thought that America would be kind of like Cinderella, mm. like with stagecoaches and ball gowns <laughs> and beautiful people from storybooks. <laughs> and then I got off the plane and people looked just like the people in Seoul, but they're not Korean. So I was so disappointed. <laughs> We're like, this is exactly the same. What are we doing here? And I was like, oh, oh. And I didn't tell anybody until I was older. I kept on thinking, this is so puzzling <laughs> to me. But it just tells you what a dumb kid I was. And then as for my parents, they're really middle class in Korea. My dad worked as a marketing executive for a cosmetics company, kind of like a low-level marketing person. And my mom was a piano teacher. And then I came to America and they didn't have any money. So we lived in this really not very nice one bedroom furnished apartment when we first got there. And everything was kind of dirty because it wasn't a very nice place. And then my parents, eventually the first year they worked in a newspaper stand, which was such a surprise compared to kind of like a regular middle-class existence, nothing fancy in Korea, but then my, my father worked in a newspaper stand and he wore a coat and tie because he had been a white collar person in Korea. Mm. And I thought it was kind of cool because he sold candy and I really liked candy. <laughs> <laughs> it shows you where my head was. I Ball mean, when you're a Cinderella kid, you're like, hey, everything is like Cinderella and candy when you're a, when you're a kid. So, <laughs> But so he did that and then he became a partner of another guy who owned a wholesale jewelry store. And it, that sounds nice, but it wasn't very nice. It's like this little tiny store on 30th and Broadway. You can still go there. It's next to a tiny Dunkin' Donuts. And oh. he sold inexpensive jewelry to street peddlers. So street peddlers, like the ones that you see on the subway mm -hmm. when they're yeah, selling yeah, yeah. $2 earrings, yeah. well, they bought their goods from my parents. And you feel like that experience has influenced like your storytelling as well? Oh, yeah, because I always identify with people who have nothing. Yeah. Like if you have nothing, if you're really just struggling, if people don't treat you with a great deal of respect, like those are my people. Yeah, <laughs> I, I feel that. I definitely, I, I definitely, um, I can definitely relate to that for sure. I mean, I, I mix with people who have a lot more now, obviously, and I actually have so much more now than I mm. did when I was a kid. But they're never out of my vision. And I think that's important because it's also something that, that keeps you grounded, but also reminds you of like the things that really matter in life as well. Yeah, yeah. You, you've spoken really beautifully about how 
in the 90s, you discovered that you were a chronic hepatitis B carrier. Mm-hmm. And a doctor said that it meant that you could develop liver cancer in your 20s or 30s. And that discovery opened the floodgates to you living your most authentic life. You actually told the New Yorker earlier this year, a part of me always felt like death was chasing me. And that's something that like pushed you to strive and to do and to achieve. And now nearly 30 years later, how do you look back on that time in terms of how it framed your attitude towards life and success in the years that followed? Oh, I think that having discovered that I was a chronic hepatitis B carrier when I was, I think, 16, because I was in high school, I donated blood to the Red Cross and I got a letter saying that I had this thing. It changed everything. And then I knew that I had this carrier status, which meant that I had a responsibility to other people because it could be transmitted through sex. Okay. And as a young person to learn that, oh, if I have sex with somebody, I could give them this really deadly disease. It's really quite shocking. And the reason why I speak about it even now is because I want people who have whatever status that they have that could have a sexually transmitted disease to actually speak about it because it's mm-hmm. it's the responsible thing. And also there's nothing shameful about it. It's just that you have an illness. Yeah, of and course. I learned it very young, but then it didn't have any effects on me because I had these sort of asymptomatic life. But then when I was in college, I got very, very sick. And then when I was in my late 30s, I actually had liver cirrhosis, which meant that I was heading toward liver cancer. And I think that as a teenager, I always felt like, oh, this really could happen to me and I didn't do anything wrong. And yet I have this thing. So I felt like I had to get everything done quickly. Mm. (laughs) And of course, it's kind of ironic because I do everything really slowly. (laughs) (laughs) Like take 10 years to write a book. (laughs) Oh my gosh. It took me forever to write Pachinko, which took even more longer than 10 years. So I kind of think um, it has certainly made me think about what it means to say things, to do things. Mm. I think about life and judgment. I think about what it means to like be right in this moment. Like how crazy is it that I'm having a conversation with you? Honestly, not crazy at all. I think it's crazy that I'm having a conversation with you. Um, No, but I just think it's really cool. I think it's really wonderful to have these intergenerational conversations and to be in the presence of somebody who's affecting culture. Mm. I'm wondering, is there like um, a moment or two that you can pinpoint in which you realize that your work, whether it was pachinko or your debut novel free food for millionaires like when that was like connecting with audiences oh gosh i should also add that i'm totally cured now i had interferon b i had wonderful health insurance and i was able to get this incredible medication and i'm fully cured and i've been tested recently and my liver looks gorgeous i just want you to know that i love that (laughs) If my body was translucent, you'd be like, wow, what a gorgeous what liver a she gorgeous has. gorgeous liver you've got. <laughs> um, so that's one thing. But in terms of connecting with audiences, my first book, which came out in 2007, mm. did really well for a debut novel. So I was really surprised. And I think what's really strange is even today in 2022, for a book that came out in 2007, people write to me saying it's become their totem. Mm. Like they read it every year to kind of go back and try to figure things out. So I felt like all that time I thought about putting in this constant level of philosophy in that book, it's obviously 
a book that is about a young girl who comes out of college and she's trying to figure out to do in the world. And she's having a hard time because she's very spirited and she doesn't get along with everything. And she has strong opinions and she's modeled after a lot of 19th century novels that I've read where the independent heroine is um, doesn't listen to authority. <laughs> and it's not really a big of a spoiler just to say that she really critiques capitalism in a very strong way, even though she has all these wishes for beautiful, luxurious things. She's at war with herself. And I was really surprised when I wrote that book because I thought, because I failed for such a long time, I might as well write the book that I really want to read. Yeah. So then I wrote that. And to have all these young women today, women younger than you, <laughs> telling me that they read this book every year, I, I think, oh, <laughs> that's so interesting. <laughs> it's an inspiring hero. Yeah. Well, I think they also wanted the freedom. And I think that's weird is that it has better reception now than it did in 2007. Oh, interesting. And I think it's because younger women and younger men and non-binary people are feeling the freedom to choose characters who rebel. And it's very funny to me that you talked about your sister being sort of quiet and then you being more spirited because... I think I really admire people who can express themselves. I really admire people who are really spirited. Both my sisters are significantly more expressive than I am. And I guess I always wanted to be more like them. So I was able to write a book that sort of, I guess, models that behavior of independence and being fierce. Like I allowed Casey to be angry in a way that when I was a child, mm. I didn't Wasn't, have the right. courage to have that. Well, I have to say, Rena, my sister, she won't shut up now. She just, she's... <laughs> She just goes and goes and goes. She's definitely now, it's almost like we changed roles. Like I was a louder child right. and then now she's like the louder teenager and well, she's not a teenager, she's 21 now, so she'll probably kill me after hearing this. Um, <laughs> but, you know, she's super outgoing and it was just a quite a shift from when she was so little to now, which is interesting. Um, when you write your books, who do you imagine that you're writing them for? You're going to laugh at me, but <laughs> I pretend that no one's going to read it. Cool. <laughs> so it, it's actually very helpful. I try really hard not to think too much about audience because then I become self-conscious. And as you know, self-consciousness mm. is really the enemy of art. So Massively. I really try to think, oh, you know what? It doesn't matter. Nobody cares. Just write it and tell the emotional truth. Because if you tell the emotional truth, in addition to all the research that I've done, then maybe it'll actually make somebody sit down with you for almost 20 hours to read your work. I mean, it's a lot to ask for to give somebody 20 hours of your life. And because it's not 20 hours continuously, it's like an hour here, here 30 minutes hour. there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They want to have to come back to you. Well, I guess it's also like a, a passion project for you because I, I also read that um, your first two books you kind of wrote on spec. I did. I didn't have a contract. So, you know, that was really something that you just took time to really nurture something and then hope for the best. And I think you've done obviously an incredible job at that. <laughs> but I... Um, yeah, I didn't have weird. an agent. Yeah. That's really, really interesting because you finished your law degree, right? Yeah, I did. I was a, a baby corporate lawyer and I did it for two years. And... Because I was really good at being this total nerd. Mm. All these senior partners would just kind of dump all this work on me and I would beaver through it and do it. And then they would just give you more. And my husband once said to me, you know, they're not like your parents. 
<laughs> they don't care if you die. <laughs> oh my God. I mean, he said it in a much nicer way. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and I, because you know, when I was working hard as a child, my parents used to always tell me you should rest. And it's interesting because my parents, they never really stressed money. Yeah. It was always about do things that really matter. And it was very helpful to think of it that way. So I kind of thought I need to have excellent quality work. I don't know how you think about I, when you make things. I love I mean, that. But you want, you want to put something out that you're really proud of and something right. that you feel like represents you and also something that you love to do. Because then, and I know it's the, the, the cliche, but it really then doesn't feel like work when you're, when you're doing something that you oh, love. It's not a cliche. It's actually an enlightened state that you even are acknowledging that. Like in order to have real psychological and mental and emotional flow, you need to feel like this is the truest thing that you can do. And I know I'm not going to write a lot of books. If I write five before I die, amazing. (laughs) (laughs) And that's okay. As long as I'm really, I feel like this this has my name on it. We'll be back with Min Jin Lee after this short break. You're now working on your third novel, American Hagwon. Mm-hmm. which you said has like an undocumented storyline. And now Pachinko took you many years to report and write. And I was wondering what stage is, is American Hagwon in as we speak and like what intention do you set for yourself as you embark on this journey of like writing and researching for it? So I'm trying to finish my first draft right now. Okay. And once I finish it, then I'm going to look at it and wonder if I did it right. Because most likely I didn't, which is fine, which is it's <laughs> interesting about like how I think I have enormous patience with the way work is made. And because I've had this freedom of not having had agents or publishers or contracts or money mm. for a really long time that I kind of think, well, I know one thing about me. I definitely finish things. That's as long as good, I'm alive, I finish things. <laughs> that's a good, that's a good trait to have. And also, you know? I, believe it or not, I don't procrastinate. <laughs> Can you not, sit and write for hours on end? Oh, no, 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 no. It's not like that. I don't know how you write your music, but that's not... No, it's more like I actually do a lot of research. So a lot of times, like, I'll look at the thing and I'll go, oh, no, I don't know that. I need to go talk so to you somebody. you go in it. Amazing. And what it does is it gives me all this confidence. So you can ask me questions about things and I go, okay, I, I thought about that. <laughs> I know that because I've actually done all the research. It's the same way in the way I was a lawyer. I did all my work. Mm. It's just that I'm slower than a lot of other people. And also I want to create something that's very, very me. It needs to be exactly the way I want to um, have it. It's kind of like if you went, if you came to my house for dinner. <laughs> and you should is this come an to invite? House, is this an invite? This is definitely an invitation. Okay, thank you so much. I would, I would love to come to your house for dinner. And I will literally cook for two days. And... From soup to nuts, every single moment will be sort of <laughs> conceived. And also every person who's in the room will be really conceived in the sense where I want it to be really nourishing emotionally, psychologically, physically, <laughs> in I every way. I and I really that. think about it. And it's not that different when I write a book. Your writing is is so visual that like when I read your books, I can like close my eyes and I can picture the characters you know I know exactly what they look like and I know you know the the whole surrounding and and I think now just hearing your you know how how dedicated you are to the research of everything and even you know if you were to throw a dinner party how 
precise that would be and how you that would be. And also, um, you know, I know that you you went and took a class at Harvard. You did like a whole semester to research for Casey, right? Yes, I went to... For your character. I'm sorry. Um, I went to Harvard for... Did I get something? No, 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 no. You actually got... It was because I did two things. I went to Harvard Business School to pretend to apply okay, in order to research <laughs> for one of my characters. And then I spent that entire semester at the Fashion Institute of Technology to study millinery for my character, Casey. So I sat there with all these super young people who are really gifted at sewing. And they kept on making fun of me because I was a good 15 years older than they were. And they were teasing me, of course. And they really (laughs) tolerated me because they knew that I was researching for a novel and they thought it was so weird that I was doing this. But after I finished an entire semester of millinery, of hat making, which is, you know, obviously very important in England, but it's less important in America, I had so much respect for people who make hats. <laughs> yeah. That's, and I needed that. It's amazing. You know, I actually, I, I really wanted to get your um, your perspective on something, especially as one of the most celebrated authors in America. The US is going through an insane, like, radical shift, you know. <laughs> and it's actually, it's it's a very scary time, not just in America, but I think all over the world. And there's this whole conversation about books which are and aren't acceptable for children to read, you know, and for schools and libraries to teach and stock. And, you know, you've got books, especially the ones that they're spotlighting in the papers, you know, books about LGBTQ rights, like Mm -hmm. Gender Queen and Lawn Boy and books about racial inequality, like All Boys Aren't Blue and The Hate You Give. And they're all being banned at really, really alarming rate. And, Mm -hmm. And I feel like a real culture war is is brewing and works of literature are suddenly front and centre in the divide between left and right. And, um, I don't know, marginalised voices are being weaponized. There's a lot happening. And, and what does it do? What do you think it does to remove these books, you know, from circulation and accessibility? And how do you see a way out of this increasingly polarised moment for literature? Well, I think what helps me is what has always helped me is to understand the history of this. Writers have always been dangerous people. Mm. (laughs) Books are dangerous because they change people. And I think sometimes instead of feeling persecuted, I feel very powerful. I know I have the capacity to change a person's mind. I've seen it. Well, people who don't want you to do that are going to try to shut you down. And this culture war right now has existed in every single generation. What's interesting about social media, it has allowed people to be exposed for attempting to do so. So as much as people decry social media, social media can also be used as a very strong force to expose it. So part of the jobs that you and I are doing right now is to say, uh, no, yeah. <laughs> we disagree. Yes. We disagree, we protest, and we will speak. So on my limited platform, and we I'm will consist- write. And we will write (laughs) and you will not stop me. You will not shut me up about saying the things that I really care Mm. about. So I'm 53 years old and I am on Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) What am I doing? (laughs) I am on Twitter. (laughs) Instagram and Twitter. Hey, look, it's for everyone and you should be on it. Why not? You have such a big voice and exactly like you're saying, books are powerful, words are powerful, things that we say, the things that we speak, the voice that we have and I think we're lucky enough to have this platform to actually use it for something that's 
that's bigger than us to stand for something yeah. um, I think is I think is important. So I have talked about my sex life at the Kennedy Center. Why? <laughs> How did that go down? <laughs> Better than expected. <laughs> nice. And I talked about it because I wanted to talk about the fact that my sex life and your sex life is really about family planning. And we have the right to plan our mm. families if we want to even have families. So if I could tell the story of my really um, rather uh, tedious sex life. <laughs> Because I got married when I was 24, and I've had a very lovely marriage, which means that I haven't had that many partners. However, <laughs> I've had several pregnancy scares, and we call them pregnancy scares because if you have sex, and even if you're super careful, it's always possible to have a pregnancy scare. Mm -hmm. So why do I talk about it? Because I think on my limited platform, with the qualitative attention that I can get, I will say that the right to plan a family, for example, is an immigrant issue. It is a refugee issue. It is a poor woman's issue. Mm -hmm. And I have been all those things. I have been related to all those things. So I will talk about it. And also I'm a Christian. So the fact that I'm a Christian speaking about these things is a really radical gesture. And as I told you earlier, mm. I would rather have a very quiet life. <laughs> <laughs> but you chose violence. <laughs> <laughs> um, you chose to have a platform and to speak your mind and to have an opinion. And I think that does a massive service to a lot of people and a lot of women. And I mean, we're going through, like I said, such radical changes. There's so much happening, so much like, I don't know, separation, polarization between people, racial inequality, you know, women, we're, we're at the hands now of God knows what, because especially with the whole Roe versus Wade, mm -hmm. you know, being overturned, everyone's a little bit like, if that could happen, anything can, you know? Anything can happen. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so to use your voice and your platform is incredibly important. And I think having a quiet life just really isn't an option I think, <laughs> in the world that we live in. Yeah. Um, it's something that's really important. And, you know, right now in, in America, the AAPI community is facing a number of urgent issues, including yeah. violence, but can I, I want to say something. I mean, yes, please. Because you're being so thoughtful about it, it gives me courage and it consoles me, do I? I want to say that right now. And I want to take a beat about this. This is so important, is that when a almost 27-year-old woman who has an extraordinary musical life is paying attention to these things, it makes me feel like, oh, you know what, this is wonderful. This is really, really wonderful because in the history of time, we've always had villains and they're villains right now. And when you think of it that way in the terms of a story, that you and I are in a story right now and we're fighting evil. And I do think it's evil for yeah, people to I burn books. So because is. in the history of time, the people who burn books, they're the bad guys. They are the bad guys. <laughs> it is. It's, so it's here true. you and I are putting on our capes and saying, we're going to fight the bad guys. And then I think, oh, if Du and I do it together... And if we can get a hundred of our friends to say, hey, stop it, <laughs> then we have a shot at winning the war and winning all the battles. And I always tell my students who are young and who are feeling so overwhelmed because they're getting a fire hose yeah. of information, of terrible things happening all the time. And if you feel a sense of despair and discouragement, I understand. 
Because I didn't have that at your age. I didn't have 24-7 nonstop news. You read the paper, you put it down, and you went about your day. Yeah. Now it's nonstop. So you have to take a beat and say, well, have I done my part today? If I've done my part today, then I'm allowed to go do other things and to rest and to enjoy my life too. It's really important because... You know, as much as I wanted to say, you know, I ended racism during AAPI month. I just did that. I took care of it. (laughs) (laughs) That's the perfect outcome, isn't it? Right. I fixed it. (laughs) Do I fixed it? (laughs) I fixed it. I'm going on holiday. Right. It's it's more like, you know what? I'm going to work on it, let's say, X number of hours per week. And then I get to do other things. Mm. But I really worry about actually teenagers because it's too much. Yeah. It's a lot. It's a lot of information. I mean, I even see it, you know, with my younger siblings as they're so, um, I mean, even my brother, he's 16 years old. And I feel like when I was 16, I was not really mm-hmm. thinking so much about everything that was happening. But like you said, if we can team up and we can talk about issues and we can, you know, have people listen and maybe we can change something. Maybe we can shift the conversation a little bit. And I felt, you know, really, really inspired during the conversation with you. We'll be back with Minjin Lee after this short break. I guess going back to what I was saying before with the radical change and everything that's happening in America, I wanted to talk about the number of urgent issues that are surrounding the AAPI community. And those are including violence, poverty, food insecurity, lack of representation. And I'm just, I'm hoping that you could speak a bit about why you think these issues are on the rise. And maybe you could spotlight some organizations or causes, you know, for those that are looking to support the AAPI community. I think one of the things is that really makes me surprised is how many people don't know about it. Mm. And they're not willing to recognize it. So in the United States... Just post-pandemic, since March of 2020 until December of 2021, just in that little period, in America, there are over 11,000 reported incidents of hate. And they could range from spitting to physical attacks to murder. And it happened primarily because there was all this rhetoric that the pandemic came from China. And unfortunately, as you and I know, people don't know the difference between ethnicities and regions. They will say foolish things. And then because we're all frustrated by the frickin' pandemic, we want to blame somebody. So then Asians were blamed. And do they know that I'm not Chinese? But it's not true. The Chinese people aren't responsible for our virus. Illness happens to everybody. And in that rhetoric, what we did was we weaponized it and we hurt people. As for the continuing level of violence against Asians in America and Asians all over the world, including in advanced economies and elsewhere, this is what's really sad. As long as you have a perception that Asian countries are on the rise, whether it's India or China, the people that you blame aren't the government leaders of those countries. (laughs) You blame the people who are in your country, in what you think is your country, right? Mm -hmm. So what's really so troubling to me is that the poorest people in New York City demographically are Asians. 
people don't know that. People won't recognize it. But then I think if you're in New York City and if you look around you and see people, people who are collecting cans, who are they? Oh, they're old Asians. They're collecting cans because that's how they're surviving. They're subsisting, right? So we have this willful, invisible poverty in the consciousness of non-Asians. And then who are being killed? The people who are collecting cans. And most of the violence actually occurs to Asian American women and Asian women. And it's happening to South Asians, Southeast Asians. And, you know, after 9-11, Muslims were attacked viciously in America. So you're of Muslim descent. So you're more aware of it. But if you happen to be Sikh, you are attacked because people confused Sikhs for being Muslim. Mm -hmm. And this level of ignorance, this amazingly abundant ignorance allows all this hate to persist, but it comes out of fear, all this fear. Always. So the little power that we have, we have to say, what's going on here? And this needs to stop. And if we pay attention, other people often do pay attention. So, and this is the reason why we have to use our limited power in some good way. I mean, it's really been so amazing to talk to you you're incredibly inspiring and i love well first of all i love your writing and i love your books and i I think and you have to come to dinner i would love to come to dinner (laughs) two-day dinner i am there um and i'm just i'm very i'm incredibly inspired by you i really am and and i've loved i've loved you're a really good teacher doa you're a really good teacher so you teach me so thank you no you you've you've taught me a lot today so I'm very grateful that I can take that with me on on my path and on my journey. So thank you so much and for everyone that's listening as well. But I'd love to wrap up my conversation by asking you for some recommendations. Can you tell me about five new or rising authors giving you hope for the future of literature? Oh, this is really something that gives me a lot of joy to do. So Ashley Ford, I don't know if you know, she's written a beautiful memoir about her father who was imprisoned and it's called Somebody's Daughter. I recommend it highly. And Isaac Fitzgerald came out with a book yesterday called Dirtbag Massachusetts and it's another memoir. It's so moving. He comes from a very interesting family in Massachusetts. He has done so many different things. He's tried every single drug. He's been in he's been in pornography. He's done everything and he's turned his life around. Mm. Dirtbag there, Massachusetts. Dirtbag Massachusetts by Isaac okay. Fitzgerald. Uh, there's a graphic novel called Moms, written by Young Shen Ma. So this is a translation. I thought maybe a younger audience might love this. It's really fun. Mm. And it was translated by Janet Hong, a young Canadian Korean. And I think it's going to become a TV show. Cool. Uh, Moms by Young Shen Ma, and it's a graphic novel. Very fun. The other one is written by Patrick Cottrell, who is transgender. And it was written when he was born as a woman, Patty Yumi Cottrell. So Patty Yumi Cottrell becomes Patrick Cottrell currently. And the novel was a debut novel called Sorry to Disrupt the Peace. And then let's see, one more. Oh, oh. No, actually, I can give two more. One is a, a book that just came out. It's supposed to be very, very fun to read. I just got a copy called Portrait of a Thief by Grace Lee, L.I. Okay. And it's supposed to be kind of like a heist sort of thriller kind of book. I think if you wanted to have a fun beach read, this might be the one, Portrait of a Thief. One more that I actually teach from 
It's a short story collection by Jamel Brinkley. And it came out a couple of years ago. It's his first book mm-hmm. and it's called A Lucky Man by Jamel Brinkley. And I think you're going to love it. It's beautiful, beautiful writing, very moving. I can't wait to dive into all of those. I'm going to I'm gonna get on those and order them online. Um, Min, thank you so much. It really has been such a pleasure and honor and a real, real joy to talk to you. And honestly, all the work that you're doing alongside your writing is truly inspiring. So we're lucky to have people like you. Oh, Dua, you're amazing. As I said before, you are my teacher and you are my sugar boo. (laughs) And you're my sugar boo. And let's definitely do dinner. I would really love to do dinner. Let's do it. I'd love that. I'd love that. That would be amazing. All right. Take care. Good luck with the writing. Thank you so much. Thanks, Min. Bye. Bye. Thank you again to Min Jin Lee, whose generosity and candor led to one of the most compelling conversations I've ever had on or off the podcast. She gave us an additional list off air for the perfect day in Upper Manhattan, which we're putting in this week's issue of Service 95, available to subscribers who sign up for our free weekly newsletter at service95.com. We'll be back next week with another episode of At Your Service. Please remember to keep writing to podcast at service95.com and let me know what lists you'd like to hear from me. And you may just hear your suggestions responded to in the weeks to come. Don't forget to include your name and where you're from. Until then, see you next week.